0: Hi everyone, my name is Sarah Kachansky and welcome to episode 71 of InsureTech Insider. We are still recording remotely and we'd love to know what guests you think we should have on the show. Do get in contact by sending us an email to podcast fscom if you know someone we should have along. So today's show is a new show, so we'll be discussing the most interesting news in the InsureTech and insurance spheres from across the globe. I am joined today by Nigel Walsh. How are you today, Nigel?
1: I'm fine and dandy, thank you very much. Fine and dandy.
0: The sunshine makes things better, doesn't it? We were talking about this earlier this week.
1: (laughs) A hundred percent. It can kill your mood in a heartbeat if you're locked in the same place for once. But uh, although I am stuck inside like everyone else, I guess. So uh, my wife keeps saying go outside, it's warmer than putting a jumper on.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, the problem we have here is the Wi-Fi doesn't extend far into the garden, but um, maybe after work we can get out there. Um, And we are joined today by three amazing guests. So first up, and making a welcome return, we have Dylan Bourguignon, CEO of SoShore. How are you today, Dylan?
2: Great, thanks. Good to be back.
0: Um, So can you give us a quick recap on what SoShore is?
2: Sure. Um, We are restoring consumer trust in insurance, uh, and we've done so by redesigning the entire value chain to be consumer-centric. Uh, we started in the UK with mobile phone insurance, um, but ambitions are global across consumer lines. And you will be seeing new product lines next year.
0: How exciting. Um, secondly, we have Sam White, who is the CEO of both Freedom Group and Stella. How are you doing today, Sam?
3: Pretty good. All the better for seeing Nigel in his Peloton gear. think uh-uh. it's spandex pants, but you know, I'm
0: hopeful. Uh, Let's let not blow. Oh, no. Hey! Okay. Okay. Yeah. For those listening, it was jeans. It was jeans. I'm a little worried there for a minute. Um, Sam, are you in an actual office?
3: I am in an office. Yes, I came into the office today.
0: My second guest this week in an actual office.
3: (laughs) I know, it's a shocking state of affairs. (laughs)
0: Um, So can you please tell us a little bit about uh, Freedom Group and Seller Insurance?
3: Sure. So Freedom Group is my UK um, group of businesses. They're all around the motor insurance space. Um, And Stella is a new Australian InsurTech, which is a um, female-targeted insurance brand for for motor insurance.
0: I love everything about this. Insurance, Australia, (laughs) my favorite country in the world, and uh, female-centric products. So I'm I'm in. You're in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And last, by no means least, we have Alessandro Spadoni, founding partner and chief architect at B3i. Thank you so much for joining us, Alessandro. How are you today?
4: I'm very good, Sarah. Thank you very much for, for the invite. It's great to great to be part of this.
0: Uh, thank you for coming along. Um, can you give us uh, a quick overview of B3i, please?
4: Yeah, B3i is the blockchain insurance industry initiative. Uh, we began life in 2016 as a roundtable, a bit of a slow start. Eventually, we became a consortium and then we were incorporated as a se- separate legal entity founded by and uh, our shareholders, which include some big, big names like Zurich Insurance, Swiss Re, Allianz, Score, Munich Re. a bunch of others. Um, We came together to figure out whether we could use distributed ledger technology for the common good of the industry. Um, And that led us eventually to build a reinsurance solution. Um, But actually, we've got a really, really big vision, which is to digitally transform the global insurance industry and turn it into what we call a DLT native industry. Pretty bold, um, uh, but that's where we want to go. I think probably worth saying we don't think the DLT can solve all of the world's problems, um, but we think it can be a very, very important foundational technology for the digital transformation of the whole industry.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming along. Um, And now we're going to get on with the show. Uh, So our first story today is that Broly has been acquired by the Direct Line Group. Um, So by the time of recording the show, the transaction is still conditional um, and the terms of the acquisition have not been disclosed, but it is expected to close this year, probably next quarter. Um, The acquisition of Broly, quote marks here, follows direct line groups vision to deliver products to help people carry on with their lives and give them peace of mind. Um, so for those who don't know, Broly was founded in 2016 um, by a lady called Phoebe Hugh, who had uh, previously been at Aviva. Um, her aim had been to sort of uh, design personalised insurance products that make buying, managing and claiming all of that more affordable and easier and more simple, basically. Um, the Brody team itself are expected to join DLG to build on the group's current propositions. Um, and the intention is, again, quote marks here, helping the group to push forward with its transformation in becoming a leading digital player in insurance. Um, so does anybody want to go first on this one? Uh, was it expected? Um, any other Any other initial comments? It
3: probably makes me a little bit sad, to be fair. Um, I, I, um, <laughs> I, I met Phoebe when she launched, so she she kind of um, we, we did an article on female entrepreneurs in the insurance space, and I'm delighted for her because I think it's you know it, it, it's great when any entrepreneur re- gets an exit and kind of gets out. But I think a little bit of me is is probably a little bit sad that there'll be one less sort of independent entrepreneur in the space, particularly a, a female one, because. Um, it's not that common.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, as you say, you don't, we don't know how she feels about it, particularly this may have been her goal all along, but um, to, see, to see some of the new competitors swallowed up by the big guys can be a little bit gutting at times. Yeah,
3: and also I think the, the culture in the larger in, insurers sometimes doesn't really promote innovation. So I would hope that whatever a vision was for the business can, can still
0: survive under that large corporate umbrella. Absolutely. Um, Alessandro, did you, did you have a point you wanted to make?
4: Yeah, I, I was just going to say I, I'm, I'm sort of not surprised by these kind of acquisitions when you think, you know, the incumbents have really struggled to innovate and really struggled to digitally transform. Um, you know, they're dragging so much legacy behind them, legacy processes, IT culture. Um, and you know, I think acquisition could be a, maybe a faster route to digital transformation for, for these large organizations.
0: Yeah, I think that's true across the, the the finance sphere, actually. If you look at the wider sort of fintech um, environment, I think, you know, whatever industry you are in, there is a, a decision and an option for a lot of the larger players to simply buy things in. I suppose there's a question about how effective that can be, to Sam's point, um, you know, maybe culturally or, or or even if you buy the technology, whether you can implement it properly and, and you know, tie it into what you've already got, um, which can be problematic. I know, I know even in banks, and I assume it's the same for insurers.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think quite a big proportion of the cost of these digital transformation projects is shoehorning into the legacy organization and legacy IT. So yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, acquisition is just the first part. But it, I, I was reflecting on on the whole thing though. I, I remember in two thousand and sixteen, I, I went to an insuretech conference here in Zurich, and uh, there were a lot of really cool people talking about it, lots of interesting stuff and a lot of good ing- uh, customer engagement. But there was one um uh, a gentleman from a, a large incumbent that came and he, he demonstrated a POC on a, a of a mobile app uh, for selling i think it was like bike, bicycle insurance or something um you know it was cool it was a nice user experience and but it was the thing that elicited the biggest reaction from the audience. People were clapping and 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 whooping, and I thought, my god that you know w- what a damning indictment of the state of the insurance industry that we can <laughs> celebrate something you know like this I mean not discrediting what they have done of course it was it was great, but um, it just demonstrates the fact there 's so much opportunity for improvement in the in the insurance industry
0: absolutely Dylan did you want to to say something
2: um uh... I think uh, I'd echo the the sentiment of both Sam and Alessandro. Um, of course, uh, the what I do think is a great thing for tech as a whole. Um, you know, I think we do need um, uh, from a kind of a uh, as a sector, we need to have uh, positive uh, outcomes for for startups. Um, and so, I think it's great that um, there is an exit there. Uh, and I think in that bigger picture, um, I think it's a, it's a phenomenally, Um great, great outcome. Um, And uh, I think it's also very hard for the incumbents to to innovate. I think there's been a demonstration that uh, uh, some have tried to do that in-house and have spent a lot of money um, and quite a few years and then ended up closing it all off. Um, so So I think maybe that's kind of the uh, the the, the acquire, acquire the innovation might be the uh, a, an easier option for uh, for many of the incumbents, but um, of course, um, I also um, echo Sam's sentiment of uh, we'd like to uh, uh, see more independence for for very long, but uh, ultimately, there's also a, uh, a prerogative with regards to um, uh, to the the investment capital that one uh, takes on along the journey.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, um, they definitely think it's the easy option. Whether it is or not, is is another kettle of fish? Uh, Nigel, did you want to, to add something to that?
1: Yeah, I think actually both you, um, Dylan, and Alessandra mentioned it's hard for incumbents to to innovate, which I don't disagree with. I think it's, it's challenging for anyone to, to, to innovate. It's much easier if you're a smaller, agile organisation to get stuff done. Have, have you seen that change in the last three months? Has it got worse? Has it got better? they 've all gone silent in the last three months so um
2: because they've been trying to deal with covid and um, I think we'll come on to it a bit later uh, so I think uh, it's uh maybe the the mindset and you might actually nigel you might actually be more the the cold, uh, cold face of understanding what senior management are are thinking and how they are um, uh, kind of going to be acting as a result of latest developments Um, but I think from a uh, from partnership perspective um, things have actually seemed to have gone complete standstill um, and everything's on pause until they start breathing again. I think what yeah we've seen
4: something similar especially in the in the early weeks of COVID when everybody's sort of running around trying to figure out what their what their exposure actually is but I'd say in the last month though we've heard a lot of a lot of noise from from our shareholders and customers um, that that digital transformation is um, you know, as predicted is, is is going to be and I say elevated in terms of priorities. So, hopefully, that will that will start to um,
0: bear some fruit for all of us. Sam, did you have anything you wanted to add on that point? Um,
3: it's interesting because I launched Stellar, obviously during covid and i actually had quite an active debate with my um vcs on this because they wanted us to park it till november and then go live because there's so much uncertainty and i think you know a lot of the certainly the the pe world finance based very risk adverse when they see a level of uncertainty the natural reaction is we need to slam the brakes on and see what's going to happen. My view is that the universe is chaos generally. I mean, there's a larger level of chaos than we would normally see. But you, for me, you can't pause because whatever the set of circumstances, you'll only find out what it is by kind of getting involved in it. And we launched two weeks ago. Um, I went back to, so we've got Aventus is our, our partner to build the tech platform over there. And they they were fantastic. So we, we were keen also for them from a partnership viewpoint to get the ship out of the harbour. And we just agreed to go on a, a slightly softer launch than we'd intended on in the first place, but just get it out there. And it's, it's, it's really been well-received. So I, I think it was the right decision just to push on. But I can see how... The uncertainty has affected these sort of more risk adverse organizations.
0: Yeah, and there are good news stories about COVID in there as well. Sorry, Dylan, did you have a quick point to make? Because I'd like to move us Very on. Very quick next point, because
2: <laughs> you know you move on. Um, I, I, Sam, 100% agree with you. And actually, I think um, many of us in InsurTech have actually found that COVID is a phenomenal opportunity to gain further market share. Um, because we can be reacting much faster than any of the incumbents with regards to the market dynamics. I know we've been um, we've been growing um, double digits whilst the rest of the market's been going down 25%. Uh, and I think that's kind of the the beauty of being in the organizations that we are.
0: Well, talking about COVID, um, I'm going to move us on to the next story. Um, Nigel, would you like to take us through this one?
1: I would love to. Thank you very much. Um, so what so we've talked about quite a bit, actually, um, no, no surprise, uh, this is from the BBC. COVID nineteen claims are still not being paid out. So uh, this is about uh, the headline was actually we spent ten thousand pounds on invalid insurance. And I think I read it the same way that you read it the first time around, Sarah. Uh, but it's actually in- <laughs>
0: invalid <laughs> insurance, not invalid insurance.
1: It's Grammar how you tell people, them, right?
0: grammar's a thing. <laughs>
1: um, and this is basically some summarizes the many challenges that have now reached mainstream media. So no longer is it on uh, Insurance Times or the FT or elsewhere. This is mainstream media picking up on uh, the lockdown, the large number of businesses that have had to close their doors and uh, how how insurers have or haven't covered their interruption policies. Um, This is about a gentleman called Nigel Manton, the owner of a beauty clinic in Cheshire. He's one of hundreds of firms that were wrongly denied cover for the virus um, and, and as a result could go bust. So the court case started this week. I'm actually one of the individuals that's tuned in live to the Lord Justice Butcher. Um, I have to say, it's fascinating to see one of these things take place. I've not seen one of them take place before. It's also being live streamed on some of the news sites if you want to see what's gone on. Uh, And and ultimately, a judge will decide on the correct interpretation of 17 or so uh, BI policies that could affect up to about 400,000 firms now, interesting. Interesting. The other thing that I read was, uh, if they do decide in favour of the businesses and they do pay out, it may not even be till September, and which by which time it may even be too late for many of those organisations. So, I, I guess one one to the floor. I mean, we've covered this a few times previously. Um, is this expected? Is this good? Is this bad? How is it going to affect our reputation?
0: I think the most interesting thing about this is not that insurers haven't paid out, because, you know, reputations of insurers aside, I think you can see perhaps why they haven't in something of, of this scale. But it's the court case. I, I'm, I'm really interested by the fact that this is, you know, this is actually happening. Um, and I want to know what the outcome is going to be. Presumably, they'll be able to appeal if it doesn't go their way. So that might drag it on for a while. I'm, I don't actually know the details of this particular court case and how it works, but I'm guessing under most court cases, you can appeal. So we might not see a resolution here for years. But if the outcome ultimately comes to be against the insurers, I wonder what sort of seismic impact that might have. Um, because my understanding of it is, it's actually quite unusual for for the FCA to to get involved and to actually launch a court case against a group of insurers in one go on one issue. I mean, it means the FCA is really showing its teeth, which is good. It needs teeth. It's a regulator. It should. Um, but I I think that's more fascinating perhaps than the fact that the insurers haven't paid out.
1: Who wants to Who wants to go? I mean, Sam, Dylan. <laughs> what? What? It, this is a toughie, right? Because we sit on both sides of the fence small business owners, business owners, as well as passionate about the industry that we serve?
3: I mean, I personally think there's been, um, there's been a number of things that haven't been handled particularly well from a support of businesses. Um, I've got, I'm a part of a sort of female entrepreneur network in the north, and it's, it's clear to me that the Cbills loans haven't been delivered in the way that businesses need either. So I think we, we've got a bit of a perfect storm at the moment that there's a number of small to medium-sized independent businesses that don't have funding from anywhere else that are really struggling. They're not getting the support in things uh, with all of the funding potentially that they require. And then your next place of of kind of comfort would be have we got insurance in place and will that help cover us so so for me i i I totally understand why the industry has looked at this and said it's unprecedented you know we can't possibly um stomach this i think the the communication has been god-awful i i think the any reasonable person could accept if you look at the total size of the claim and say that would actually bankrupt a number of insurers and and the insurers can't be expected to take the full weight of this there you know the, there are multiple strands to supporting businesses but i think the the sort of immediate shut the door say no and not enter into conversations to try and find an amicable solution that maybe isn't a hundred percent of the cover but provides some support is really where we failed as as an industry
0: the, yeah the insurance industry has just showed itself to be entirely inflexible um which you know is is a a very a very standard procedure for a very large organization but also a very old-fashioned approach to it going no arms crossed we're not talking about this uh, sorry yeah. i cut you off dylan <laughs> not
2: at all um I found what quite interesting what's happened in Switzerland. the, the insurers there um, I think it was Helvesia in particular, um, who did deny the claims, but recognized that a lot of SMEs were dependent on a uh, uh, on claim being able to be or support to be able to um, keep them alive. And so what they've created as a result is a fund. Which just provides loans to SMEs, and so um, I think to your point, Sam, it uh, it it is about you know yes, your wording might not be allowing you to pay out contractually the uh, the 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 policy, and the expectation on the other side might not have been understood, um, but ultimately we are here when people. Are up the creek without a paddle and so that is the purpose of insurance so it's about figuring out what is the right thing to do for the consumer or customer as a whole so it's just so much of a, a mantra for us that um it, it, it's about finding alternative solutions that might be supportive of that and if you um and actually you know what's happened and what's, what I found fascinating is actually this is an a uh, An independent company that has taken that step um, in parallel of what the state might have decided to do.
1: I, I think I think it's a really interesting point, uh, and I suspect that because we started, the industry had to finish. It had to see its way through this thing and work out what the because you had many people talking about the letter or the spirit and. You know, if we if we did everything on the Spirits, we, we'd be in a very different position from a business perspective. We all have good intentions. And I think many of the insurers, all the insurers I know, certainly always have great intentions, great people, great things they do for charity. But actually, ultimately, we sign up to a contract and that contract is there to do something. I always go back to, because I get a lot of stick for, oh, you're in insurance, you're denying claims. We have paid out over 1.3 billion in claims so far already, number one. And number two, The ABI have already come out and said, for most people, you won't be covered for it. And for many, they're okay with that because they didn't expect that in the first place. But uh, to Sam's point, the communications, the engagement, what you could do, what you couldn't do, I think are really interesting, um, some really interesting points for what we do going forward. And no doubt at all, like SARS, language will be updated for any future pandemics and denial of access and all the other things that go with it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Alessandro, uh, uh, I don't know if you've got a perspective from, from Switzerland per per Dylan's point too. Uh,
4: I, I, my perspective. I, I mean, I don't know much about the specifics of the dispute. I don't know whether the the nature of the dispute is around the specifics of the language and the the clauses in the contracts, or, or whether it's more of a sort of you know a, a moral based dispute of you know it's business interruption. It doesn't matter that um you know that it's a pandemic, or whether there were contracts that had specific exclusions around pandemics, but. I mean, if I look at this through a sort of B3I lens, um, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is, is uh, provide structured contracts and move away entirely from prose based contracts that, that you know, build in a lot of sometimes deliberate ambiguity. Actually, let's be honest about it, um, and uh, move to a more of a sort of smart contract model that allows you to computationally process events against that um, without having the ambiguity and open to interpretation piece. I know it's a, a slightly utopian view because, you know, to to structure contracts to cover every single kind of clause and exclusion that you might have is is difficult. But it's it's a road that we have to go down. I I feel really really strong about that. I mean. Um, when I think about the work that we've done in B3I, um, we, we we took a lot of um, example pros based reinsurance contracts, and they are absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, you know, I'm so impressed by the the, the the minds of the underwriters that they can navigate these contracts and understand actually what risk is being is being covered by them. So um, for me, structure it and and uh, and move away from from legalese.
3: Ask
1: Stella. She, she'll make it all simple, <laughs> right, Sam?
3: And she actually does. does. (laughs) That is one of the jobs that we spent an inordinate amount of time on going through all the policy wording and trying to translate it into something that a human being could actually understand. Um, But, I mean, it is. It's, you know, there's so much that we could do better. And communication, I think, has got to be the start point. And, you know, I go back to... um, the, the, the point around the sort of defensive response of computer says, no, we have a reputation for that as an industry. And you're right, Nigel, there's loads of fabulous people in the insurance industry. Mo- you know, Most of the people that I know in the industry genuinely care. But because they're told day in, day out that your job is to manage risk, there is a, a fear factor that comes from that that results in a a pushback and a a sort of reticence to engage and find solutions. And I definitely think we need to we need to work on that.
0: Well, um, I don't think we've heard the end of that story, put it that way. So I'm sure we will come back to it. But I think one point we can all agree on is the transparency point and the clarity point. And if, you know, people at the very beginning don't even know what they're signing up for, then you've kind of got to expect unhappiness and disputes, I have to say. Um, We're just going to take a quick break now. Highland Solutions for Insurance complement your core business systems, providing employees with a complete view of the information they need when and where they need it. Helping you to deliver better experiences is at the heart of everything they do. Learn more at www.highland.com forward slash insurance. That's www.hyland.com forward slash insurance. Just before we continue, are you still switching up your morning routine now some of us are social distancing? Well, so are we. In fact, we've started a live show to help you kickstart your day on both sides of the Atlantic. On the FinTech Insider Breakfast Show, we chat about the latest news with a series of industry guests all dialing in remotely. Uh, It goes live on LinkedIn Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday at 8.30am BST. But if you're US-based and 8.30 BST is just a little bit too early, do not worry, we haven't forgotten you. We also have an option for US listeners. FinTech Insider Breakfast Show US is hosted by Sam Moore and goes live at 10.30 ET every Wednesday, so grab a coffee and tune in. To watch the shows, just follow 11FS on LinkedIn to get a daily notification. And for both shows, don't forget to add your comments in the thread and please do reach out if you have any suggestions of people who should come along on the show. You can email breakfastshow at 11fs.com. Right now, back to the news. Um, so we have a UK insurance casualty story here. Another sort of uh, perhaps sadder piece of news for the for those um, you know supportive of, of keeping the number of startups in the industry. Um, and this is that. Coverly has closed business. Um, So Coverly uh, offered pay-as-you-go insurance to um, SMEs. Um, It's confirmed it's closing down and is no longer offering uh, insurance. Um, Existing policyholders are still covered. It's interesting because it's not necessarily an entirely independent InsureTik, this one. So um, it has a parent company, which is Bibby Financial Services, or BFS. Um, and back in March, uh, that company announced a restructure, which included closing a Liverpool office, making a number of redundancies. Now, at the time, the managing director said that that wouldn't affect Coverly. But actually, uh, what's happened since is that um, Coverly needed further cash in order to grow. Um And apparently, in early this year, they started to look to the external market for that investment. Um, But because of COVID, or maybe just since COVID, uh, the the company itself doesn't ascribe the inability to attract capital to COVID. Um, But it is very coincidental timing. Um, They haven't been able to get the investment basically um, and so BFS has taken the decision to close the insurance startup um, and instead it's going to focus investment on core invoice finance and foreign exchange businesses, both of which also serve small businesses. So um, BFS's reasoning is that there are better ways that they as a business can serve their small business customers um, by focusing and targeting their resources on on other products as opposed to insurance. Um, a quick note, it only launched last year. Um but it managed to acquire three thousand customers in that span, which is pretty good customer acquisition for for a new brand, um, and even I'd say the parent company is not that widely known. So it had pretty good going. But it looks like in this case they just they just couldn't get the capital they needed to to, to expand. Um, other than being sad, maybe maybe people are happy. I don't know actually. What are your thoughts on this one? Maybe you're jumping for joy.
2: So can I just say well, actually BB Financial is actually quite well known. Um is it? Okay, uh, oh, I yeah. apologize. In, uh, in, in voice discounting, it's pretty, it's one of the uh the bigger players in that space, um, and have got a uh been a traditional and exper- experienced player in, in the space for a long time. So they've actually got a decent distribution channel that already exists, um, which is very helpful when you're uh launching uh an insurance product. It's um I find it disappointing that, you know, one year, well, you know, one year is nothing. Um, and, uh, you, you've barely just, um, started, uh, and shutting it down at that point, I think maybe there've been the expectations that, um, insurance is easy. I think, uh, anyone who uh, understands the space realizes and knows that it's not. Um, and it takes more than a year to, uh, uh, to, 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 Deliver uh, significant results, which allows a company like a, a traditional company to feel comfortable uh, about the kind of the financial standing of that uh, of that entity. Uh, and so, I think it's a bit uh, a bit of a pity that the the group didn't think about it as a kind of a longer term investment, because I think it it makes a lot of sense, and they've got actually cost selling opportunities which are pretty strong with their existing customer base
0: clearly i don't know enough about invoice financing so i shall attempt to rectify that for future for future episodes um does anybody want to build on dylan's point
1: i think um i'm actually upset for the regions and actually one of the things that i've noticed about covid is actually a push out of the big cities or at least out of the capital of london into more regional centers and given um you know, Bibby up in Liverpool and the changing of offices, I thought we were going to see more and more regional locations do better and better. So, you know, back to Sam's point earlier, female entrepreneur, you're going to exit one of three ways. You're either going to exit the stop, exit and acquire, and exit and go public. Uh, we had one. Now this is the second one. I think we did Lemonade on the last show. That's the full house of, of, of all three. Um, I, I, I said say the, 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 the most frustrating thing for me is, Actually, I thought regions was important and I thought SME was hugely important. In fact, most of my conversations with clients these days are only about the SME sector. So I was surprised by this.
0: Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem an obvious as you say, to me it you know, and I don't know enough about the parent company here, so I don't know what other struggles or problems they might they might have been dealing with. But the SME market doesn't seem an obvious one to be Pulling out of, unless they are concerned, perhaps by the previous story. I don't know how tenuous that is, but maybe they've seen what's happened to the larger insurers who are trying to provide SME insurance under COVID and want to regroup. Um, though that, even to me, who's just said it, feels quite tenuous. I have to say, Dylan.
2: But coverly isn't it a uh, broking? So actually, not taking the underwriting balance sheet, uh, balance sheet risk. In which case, whatever's happening for the from the previous story. Is not going to be affecting them, their bottom line. Of course, it's going to be affecting their relationship with their customers, who were offered a, a policy that didn't uh, necessarily pay out. Um, but I, I'm pretty certain the customers will understand that the is the issuing paper that is uh, more at fault, possibly.
0: But I was just going to say, I've read quite a lot about a lot of small businesses just not bothering with insurance anymore, unless they actually have to, because, um, you know, like as a motorist, I have to have motor insurance to drive a car, unless it's a particular sort of small business that has to have insurance to operate. I have seen quite a lot of figures that say a lot of small businesses are just going, well, it's not going to cover me. So what's the point? I'll keep the money in an account, you know, a a savings account. And if something goes wrong, I'll just use that instead, because clearly these insurance won't serve me. Um, Sorry, Nigel, please. No,
1: no, you and I were about to say exactly the same point. I think there's a, we're just about to release a study that talks about the number of people buying insurance, what they're buying in the SME space, and I do worry about exactly the same point. Given all the noise that's now reached mainstream media about uh, business interruption and cover and all those sorts of good things, uh, are we just going to stop buying it, period, period, number one? And uh, number two, does that make it worse going forward for an insurance protection gap uh, for, for small businesses that want to get going?
0: It must depend on which area of insurance you're in as well, right? Because presumably, Sam, I don't know if Australia is the same, but here in the UK, we've seen a huge increase in people who have acquired cars under COVID because they do not want to use public transport. Also, people have switched from doing, you know, an annual insurance to doing pay-as-you-go insurance because they're driving a bit less, but they still need the car. I mean, I am, you know, know, sample of three, but I am one of three people who has got a car in the last month to get around because we didn't need one previously and now we have one, but we're on short-term leases or they're short-term hires, so we only need pay-as-you-go insurance. So the demand for car insurance is still there, but it's changed. Um, you know, is, is that the same in Australia, actually?
3: Um, yeah, so uh, motor insurance isn't compulsory in Australia. Um, Sorry, so- what? <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> but, I mean, people do generally buy it. Um, I'm not sure if the CTP is compulsory, but the the vehicle insurance isn't. Um, but there has been a massive uptake in second hand car sales. Um, new cars not so much, but people the secondhand car market is is improving massively. And certainly from my group of companies, Freedom Brokers, which is the B2C arm in the UK, has had record months over the last few months so um that that's that's willing out but but we've just started selling public liability insurance as as part of an add-on because we have a lot of commercial vehicle um users and, and and that's something that businesses do need in certain you know that is a, a sort of compulsory thing for certain types of businesses um and i do think with the gig economy the idea of temporary insurance in business insurance is 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 really cool i think that the products that coverly hat were were exactly what we need and and where we should be heading i suspect this is a knee-jerk reaction if i'm honest my 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 gut feeling is um i actually know jeffrey bibby and i will message him at the back end of this and see if anyone's taking it over because my gut feeling is that somebody should do something with with this it's it's the right kind of product i don't know if they had any challenges with the paper because you would need a pretty brave underwriter to support you with that kind of new type of insurance product and whether that ultimately is the challenge. And to to, um, I think it was Dylan's point with regards to it being um, a a broking business, they still need the products to be able to broke. So I don't know if there was any challenges um, around that that could have caused the issue because it doesn't make logical sense
0: to me. Hmm. Interesting one. All right. um, I'm going to move on to our next story and I'm going to let Nigel take it. Now, Nigel, I know this is your favourite subject, but please do let our guests get a word in edgeways on this one. okay?
1: Uh, I think you've done this on purpose, so I can't speak about it. Um, This should come with a government or a Walsh health warning. Um, It's not a wind up, folks. This is true. Uh, Lockdown increased electric scooter sales, but it comes with its risks. So this is a story in your money. Uh, And if you haven't been hiding under a rock, it's in every single news outlet or newspaper or online. Uh, Drivers, this is a warning about electric scooter fines specifically. Drivers who ride privately owned e-scooters on public roads could risk losing their driving license. And actually the rules around these are really, really complicated. Uh, E-scooters are freely available to buy in the UK, but they can only be ridden on private land with the permission of the landowner. I don't know about anyone on, uh, on, on the podcast, but I'm certainly not going around the house on a, um, on a small e-scooter for sure. And actually having jumped onto some of these websites, they're not being very clear about some of these messages. Uh, during the year-long... Tri- so they're just about to announce, announce a trial. I think it's in um, Middlesbrough. It began on the 4th of July. Uh, it's a year-long trial for e-scooters that will be classified as motor vehicles. And as people will therefore realise... A driving license and insurance will be required to use one of these. Insurance in this instance will be provided by the rental provider. And as Sarah kindly pointed out in very bold, big capitals this morning on Twitter, you need a driving license. It might be provisional, but our friend Sharon then piped up when I've got a provisional license and I'm half blind. So I
0: <laughs> I think that says I, more about the DVLA than it does about this particular story. <laughs> yeah. but.
1: Oh, man. I, I, I'll finish on one point. It says, unlike electric bikes, e-scooters are classified as personalised electric vehicles and therefore are subject to the same legal requirements as cars, including technical safety standards, road, tax, and insurance. I, I could talk about this for hours. I won't. I'm going to throw it to the floor and go, <laughs> what do we think, folks? Um, what's it like in Zurich? What's it like um sam dylan sarah good bad indifferent are we going to use these things
0: So I'll go first and be quick, because um, my opinion is quite widely out there. But I will just say for the record, I think electric scooters are fine so long as there are rules. What was frustrating me was there were no rules, because I also get very frustrated about the fact that there is no recourse for accountability for cyclists who kill people by going too fast. Like there's no, why don't we have to license cyclists when they go at 40 miles an hour through cities and kill people. So if you're driving something or riding something that goes at 40 miles an hour and can kill either you or somebody else, then there should be accountability. So if that's happening with these scooters, and that means either you have a special e scooter license, maybe I don't know yet. We haven't got there yet. But if you know who you, who is riding it, they are insured, and you can trap them down if something goes wrong, and there are rules around it. I don't ride them on the blinking pavements, which I would have thought would have been obvious. Then. I'm okay with it, but this is what I wanted. I wanted the rules, and now we have rules, we have accountability. Whether the British police force will be able to enforce them, given everything else they're doing, I have no idea. Um, But once we have rules, maybe it's just my, my, my Britishness, I feel slightly safer, I feel better about the situation
4: we've had scooters here in in Zurich for some time now and i have to say it seems to work i think lime were the first the first company to start doing them and they uh, they were pretty widespread then they disappeared for a while i'm not sure what happened there might have been some, maybe there was an incident and uh they had to um maybe regulated or something but now there's a there's a rash of scooters and people do use them on the on the on the pavements but generally you know they're pretty responsible and I've not seen or heard of anybody getting seriously hurt so I don't know, it just sounds a bit ridiculous to me to be perfectly honest I mean you know if, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna demand driving licenses for electric scooters what would be next then
0: you know well there have been a number of deaths in the UK already reported and they're not even common or legal here so um I I I think other than The point about them being motorized and their speed is a thing as well, because in some places in the US, the speed is actually restricted. Um, you cannot go at the top speed. It's only 50 miles an hour. And it, the higher scooters have a speed restriction on them automatically. I think
1: there's a media challenge in this one, in that the way it's reported on the national sites about scooter trials and what's not. Back to your point about clarity and rules. They don't talk about they give you a headline, which is almost misleading. You could read it and scoot past it. No pun intended. Um
0: See so, that you know, so was funny. definite intention then, Nigel. Don't pretend, <laughs> it wasn't. You. Don't I'm pretend that my own was jokes an now.
1: <laughs> this is terrible. Um, but, but you can you can you can go past the headline without reading the detail that says it's rental ones only. And the number of people I've seen riding them on pavements or two people to a scooter on the pavements, is like, come on. So I think um, this talk this article talks about the original trial. I think from this weekend they're actually opening up to 18 cities. Uh, including some London boroughs. Now imagine the situation. Some London boroughs do have them and some London boroughs don't. So if you cross the borough boundaries, do you get arrested or not arrested? And then you get a six points on your driving license if you've got one, and then your your insurance goes up. So I think it can't be piecemeal as they've described. It needs to be almost wholesale. This is what we're doing. You can't ride them. You know, they they even say you know helmets are optional if you're driving at 30 miles an hour without a helmet then you need your head examined in the first place you can't
4: legislate for stupidity I mean, I, you, know.
0: you can't legislate for helmets though because in this country you have no. to legally wear a helmet to ride a motorbike sorry sam you were trying to say something there and we we got on our high horses
3: no it's, it's just interesting i think you can't legislate against the brits i mean i've been to Rick, they seem to follow the rules quite nicely for most things. I should imagine they've been socially distancing appropriately and, and doing what they're supposed to do, I think, in the UK. We don't. We don't follow the rules. We we generally do lots of stupid things, and we do probably need more legislation around it. I, I agree with you, Sarah. You, the, it, it is too dangerous not to, but I also agree that there should be some rules around cyclists because not, you know, not only do they um injure other people they 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 do cause accidents a lot of the time and this kind of s- switching between pavement and road and you know yeah really not following any kind of um rules whatsoever is because there are no consequences and I, I think that if there's a danger that you can hurt somebody else, there should be some rules around it. And that's the reason that we have insurance as well. So if somebody slams into your car on um, on a, an electric scooter or a bike, how, how am I going to deal with that? How am I going to get back put in the position that I was prior to the accident? So, I, you know, I, I'm with you. And I, I, I do, you know, I've tried one in my friend's back garden. I did very well. My, my partner was drunk and thought that she'd give it she didn't do so well it was one of the funniest (laughs) things I've seen in a long time to be honest I I thought that they were a lot harder to navigate as she went first and fell over about four times and then realized it was in fact the wine that she'd had before (laughs) we didn't we didn't leave the garden but I mean how does that stand up can you be drunken on an electric scooter
0: like you could be drunk on a bike can't you I mean theoretically but what's the punishment if you're caught drunk on a bike and you cause a seven car pile-up absolutely nothing Exactly. Sorry, no, this, goes,
1: this goes back to the whole piece about rules and there being it's being such a complex area. So I genuinely, as much as I dislike them, and I have tried one out in the US, I apologise to people, um, I, as much as we talked a minute ago about cars and people getting cars like yourself, Sarah, people will start to choose different modes of transport as we get back to normality post-COVID. I can't imagine us, think of the the, the deepest darks of winter with pouring down rain and snow and stuff all over the roads they're going to be back on these on these scooters but the fact that they're different to e-bikes or bikes themselves creates too much confusion so i can have a motorized bike that doesn't need insurance or a license but i have a scooter that does and it can only be a rental one not a private one so it's kind of crazy and you can see why people are confused and if you go back to your previous point about um there was a tv presenter that was tragically killed on an e-scooter I think two weeks later, the police in London then stopped 100 people and dished out £100 fines to everyone. So it's just a very, a very confusing time for people to understand what the rules are and are not. And I don't know, maybe COVID, um, maybe COVID will give people a new level of responsibility as they start to think about how they're going to get into the city or into their chosen place to work in 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 a smarter way.
0: Should we should we let Dylan have a say before we before we close this out because I do, I do feel I'm sorry Dylan we've been we've been quite vocal so please do do express your opinion if you have one
2: no I think um uh, I think it's it's not it's not just about protecting uh, the others but also sorry, I, I, I agree with that most of the comments have been put out here I think um it is a, it is quite confusing of uh, the, the limitations between bikes and scooters and the especially when they're powered. They I mean I, I was uh, you'd be surprised to know actually that it's still illegal because living in London, you see them all over the place, um, literally on the pavement and on the, the road. And I'm pretty certain they're not hired, because if they were, you'd expect them to have all sorts of signs on them to say that they're being uh, hired by a certain company. So I think that probably kind of adds further to the confusion. Uh, the uh, And I suspect most people have no idea uh, what the status of those scooters are. And I think they probably also think, hey, that sounds like a pretty good and safe way of going into work or traveling around London without having to take public transport. Why... I, I do think they, that there needs to be uh, some kind of rules around them, and actually also to protect the scooter user, because if you think about the speeds at which you're going at, and the the fact that actually you're not very visible, because the, the the vehicle on which you're on is is just the um, is just a bar in front of you. If you're looking about cars, uh, you're just as visible as a pedestrian, but certainly you're going fast. And if you think about all the, you know, we've got loads of accidents already with cars, um, with with cyclists, but cyclists have actually got a pretty kind of big frame that can be seen um, and they are higher and kind of, so I'm just concerned about the safety of the scooter users if there weren't any rules, because if they are to be using the road, they also need to be, um, uh, I think it's really important that they are visible and be able to be protected. Um, from the other vehicles that are on the road and making sure that everyone can be um, uh, harmoniously um, going wherever they need to go uh, without having any accidents on the way. But uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's, I think it is a minefield. And as the fact that actually, because of, I think there is a sentiment, especially in London, that, that uh, cyclists should have some um, level of uh, being, being made responsible for the actions. Which is not the case at present, and I think that's uh, and I think the the scooter is is probably catalysing that, and it's why probably it's um, creating such a vivid reaction amongst many, including Nigel.
0: But I mean, just before we, yeah, I mean, to to your point there about safety, you know, there are no rules about cyclists having lights either, which is dangerous for just about everybody involved. So I think perhaps we come to the conclusion that we need clarity. Well, rules are good, but we need clarity and perhaps one set. That, you know applies to anything on two wheels that's going to use a road <laughs> um all right we will have to leave it there but i am i'm sure this debate will will continue um, and we'll be bringing you further updates on various stories uh, as they come out um but just before we leave you i caught up with mark bud who is the uk head of innovation at Zurich insurance um, we talked a few days ago to talk about this year's Zurich insurance championship um this year it was entirely remote um in fact it's not finished yet so it's still running entirely remote Uh, So let's hear from him now. Welcome to InsureTech Insider Interviews. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and it's my pleasure to be joined once again by Mark Budd, UK Head of Innovation at Zurich Insurance. Today, Mark is going to tell us about this year's Zurich Insurance Championship. We're going to talk about the process running this competition whilst fully remote and the importance of adapting digital processes to support startup founders during trialing times. Um, Mark, thanks for coming back. How are you today?
5: I'm good, thank you. Enjoying uh, working at home for my 120th day, whatever it is.
0: <laughs> you get to the point where you think you actually I would like a change of scenery, don't you? You think I, I like the home thing, but maybe just a slight change.
5: I could just do it without the kids;
0: it'd be a lot easier. Ah, uh, right. Yes, I'm, I'm lucky. <laughs> I don't. I don't have that problem. Um, so, can you start us off by giving us a quick reminder about uh, what you do at Zurich? I'm not sure Zurich itself needs any introduction, but uh...
5: yeah. So, so, my role as head of innovation is to uh, facilitate the evolution of new ideas in our organization. Uh, some organizations have labs where they'll, they'll go off in, into different parts of the organization and build stuff. Our role in Zurich is to facilitate that process. So we'll take an idea from anywhere in our business and we walk it through our process where we really test it for desirability, feasibility and viability through that process. If, if it stands up to those things through the process, we end up in a market pilot where we set our KPIs, take a pause and then we start thinking about whether it's something you wanna scale or not.
0: Brilliant. So um, with that in mind, can you give us a refresher of what the Zurich Insha- Insurance Championship is?
5: Yeah, so we, the, this is our second year. Uh, the, the, the whole principle about it really is in, is in recognition of startups that probably have capabilities that we don't have. Uh, and we open our doors and we say, we open up to startups around a theme and say, who would like to come and work with this? Uh, this year's theme was around uh how we can have uh, technologies or propositions or services to help protect next generation for more sustainable tomorrow. Um, so this example, uh, the competition was launched on 24th of September last year, uh, where we opened our gates for submissions. They, that gate closed on December the 17th, uh, and globally we had 1,400 startups that chose to work would like to work with Zurich, uh, and in the UK specifically we had 170 um so at the point of the middle of december we had to get 170 down to six which was a pretty big ask um but we managed to do that and at the end of january we had our uk final where six of the six top startups as we saw them came and presented to our uk exec uh we had a long day they had a chance to present and we had a series of questions and from that we chose our winner um we had a really broad range of startups we had people talking about life products and wearables. We talked about, uh, there was a startup that could could determine building construction from satellite imagery and street view. We had some guardian angel type solutions for the lonely people who who were were isolated, which is a really interesting, we didn't know COVID was gonna happen then, but a really, really interesting proposition. Uh, And and our winners were parametrics. Uh, And parametrics provide a parametric Uh, solution to for third party downtime.
0: So could anybody participate? What what were the kind of, I don't know, what what were the criteria for being able to to, um, apply in the first place?
5: So the criteria really was about how to protect the next generation for a more sustainable future. Uh, That said, not everything quite fitted perfectly in that. So, you know, we we look at it pretty reasonably and we're just looking for interesting organisations that we think can help help us and our customers stay relevant, you, really.
0: And can it be from anywhere in the world? It's, it's not not just UK, you mentioned globally yeah. there, but...
5: Absolutely. So the 1,400 entrants we had were from around the world. Um, 170 in the UK, we had, we had entrants from the UK, but we also had them from Germany, uh, the US, South America, and indeed the winner's parametrics were from Tel Aviv,
0: Israel. Oh, fascinating. So absolutely open. Brilliant. Um, so we talked to you last year about the contest and obviously it's, it's a little bit similar this year, but we are, as we've discussed, um, in a slightly different situation, as we've said, both working from home for the 120 <laughs> day, um, which obviously might have made pitching a little bit different this year. What, how, how did you go, how did you get around that?
5: Well, the, the original, the original pitching in our UK final was end of January. So we were none the wiser at this point. <laughs> so we, fortunately we'd already chosen our winners by then. Um, and indeed, when we started, so, so the, just to give you some context, the next part of the process, once you've selected your winners, is to work with those guys to, to look at what a market pilot would look like. So normally we'd adopt our, our normal processes around how we do that. Uh, and we plan to run numerous face-to-face sessions as we normally would. Uh, and then of course COVID struck, a uh, complete curveball for everybody. Um, so we had to rethink about how we were gonna run some of those sessions. Uh, if honest, we were, we were a bit worried about that to start with, but I've been absolutely stunned and delighted as to how my team and how, the, how parametrics have responded to that. Uh, and we've, we've worked fantastically as a team. It's really, really interesting. We really feel like we know each other, even though, we've, even though we've never met. And I think often we would have thought this would have precluded us from working with startups. What I found really interesting is that we have proved actually it doesn't. And then, in fact, the costs of a startup, perhaps based in Tel Aviv, even the travel costs and the carbon footprint that comes with it, actually, you don't need to do that. So we've learned an awful lot about how to run these processes, form a relationship with a startup in a remote environment. And actually, I think we do it
0: again. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, because I think, you know, uh, uh, personally, I travel, used to travel quite a lot for work, um, but I'm one of quite a few people who are kind of going, why do I need to go to Amsterdam for the day? I, we could do this remotely. Like, don't get me wrong, I love Amsterdam. It's a beautiful city. But, you know, there's something to be said for getting up at four in the morning, flying to Amsterdam, having a two-hour meeting and flying back, particularly, I imagine, with the, the theme for your uh, for the, the championship this year, which is, a, which is all tied in with sustainability and, and the future. So maybe... Yeah, I mean...
5: Uh, yeah. we we just never would have thought of it so it just it caught us all <laughs> by surprise but you're absolutely right A, uh, you know the, the, the no carbon footprint is a really big deal the fact that we can talk to anybody anywhere we kind of knew that anyway but we all mm-hmm. we always would have relied on a face-to-face interaction and, and don't get me wrong we'd love to have a face-to-face interaction but mm-hmm. we've managed to do some some really great work at really quite a low level of detail that we probably wouldn't have imagined we had been able to do previously so surprising but great news
0: <laughs> yeah no absolutely if not any is great news for the planet but um great news for everybody else's uh you know travel plans and lives i think um was there anything particular that you had to set up i mean did you have to sort of have a look around and think what how do we do this what tools do we have you know i'm thinking well actually i don't know what tools did you have and did you have to go out and find some some new ones for, for to enable that sort of collabor- to enable that level of collaboration
5: i think we were somewhat fortunate Um, In at Zurich we'd almost we just got to the end of our windows 10 office 365 rollout so we we had all the tools. suddenly made available to us, so I think we didn't have to go and find any tooling specifically it was more around the creativity of my guys, to some extent, to try and work out the things that we would normally do face to face. How could we do that remotely? I mean, we'd normally be sat around with Sharpies and Post-its. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised what you can do in a chat, even even just in a chat window or even in PowerPoint. There are lots and lots of ways in which you can do it, actually. I mean, since then, we've probably found some, some tools that are, are perhaps that help us do that a little bit better. There's something called Mural, which we've recently adopted and is working really well for us. But if I'm honest, I think it's as much the mindset as it is the tool set. If you get the right people with the right mindset, you can probably make it work with a whole range of tools. Uh, Some might make it slightly easier than others, but I think it's being prepared to have a go at something, continually learning when you're doing it. Make sure you take the learnings from the previous session and we're just getting better and better and better at it.
0: I, I totally agree. I think it's, um, I mean, that's something that can be, can be sort of shared across any kind of innovation or the whole, the whole innovation, I suppose, sphere is processes as important as technology. So you can have all the best technology in the world, but if you're welded to those ways of doing things that you've been welded to for 50, 60, in insurance, maybe a hundred years, um, the, all, the, all the technology in the world isn't going to help you.
5: No. And, and the process is, it, because it's it's actually lack of process. And being comfortable with ambiguity in the first instance which which my guys kind of do is just kind of in their dna but we just didn't have a process we never thought we'd have to do it so i think i think it just for those with innovative mindset and those with that that can deal with ambiguity actually it's just another challenge with different sets with a different set of conditions
0: brilliant well it sounds like it all went well am i to assume that you're going to be running it again next year
5: well, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll definitely be running it again next year. This, the, the the competition hasn't come to a conclusion yet. So just to round off the comp, the, the conversation mm-hmm. in terms of the competition, uh, we had the EMEA round, which is all the European countries. We had that round on the 29th and 30th of June. Okay. And the, the winners from the European round then go into a global final from from LATAM, North America, APAC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Great from the UK's perspective, the UK and the Spanish BU's won the European rounds. So there's two, two entrants from, from Europe to join the others. Um, the final is in the o- beginning of October, where all the various startups from the various regions will present to the global exec, and uh, normally we do that face-to-face. I'm fairly sure we won't be doing that this time round. so I think that that presentation will come with a different set of challenges again. Um, but yeah we we're not quite done yet we're still in the running, and we're excited about about the final round
0: sorry I jumped ahead so when, to so remind me when will the final when will the the absolute winner or the global winner be announced
5: there were going to be three there are eight finalists left from the fourteen hundred so we've got fourteen hundred down to eight <laughs> uh there are going to be three winners uh and that and that round is a is the i'm not quite sure what the exact date is it's it's the beginning of october where each country will Go and present their in conjunction with their mm-hmm. startup around what the solution is to the global exec where, where three winners will be announced
0: brilliant and what do what do those winners get if you like <laughs> what's the price
5: yeah, so the, the prize is the resources that that startup need to get a real market pilot going um the backing of zurich the access to our customer base uh and probably to some extent the benefit of the brand so, often in these relationships, we've got customers and brand, and the startup has technic- technical expertise and agility, and it's the meeting of those two things that we think is a really mm-hmm. interesting combination and, and something we just we, we want to get better at driving value from.
0: Absolutely. Leveraging each other's strengths. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Mark. Um, if people want to find out more about the competition um, and, and perhaps what you're up to at Zurich, where, where can they do that?
5: Uh, zurich.com forward slash ZIC. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. There are various people posting uh, posting on LinkedIn about the competition. But, yeah, if anyone wants to get hold of me and ask me any questions direct, feel free to do so via LinkedIn.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mark. Okay, well, that wraps up the news for today. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you and your companies? Do you have websites, Twitter, LinkedIn? Um, so any form of communication you'd like people to reach out to you on? Uh, Sam, shall we start with you?
3: Um, LinkedIn is definitely best for me. Sam White on LinkedIn for Freedom Services Group. You'll find me there. All right, Dylan, how
0: about you?
2: Dylan Bourguignon on LinkedIn. Otherwise, uh, Twitter handle, we are so sure. And uh, our website is wearesosure.com because you can't just be sure about your insurance. You've got to be so sure about it.
0: Oh, nice. There's a tagline. Um, Alessandro, how about you?
4: Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Alessandro Spadoni. There's not many of us um, at B3i. And the B3i website is b3i.tech if you want to know a bit more about that.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. And Nigel, uh, presumably if people want to find out more about Nader's opinions on the scooters, Twitter is the best place to find you.
1: I think you and I have a good old banter on Twitter about uh, scooters and the lack of rules. So yes, I'll be fighting the good fight forever on Twitter at Nigel Walsh.
0: Perfect. And you can find me on Twitter, probably debating with Nigel at Sarah Kuchansky. Um, Thank you to all our guests today, uh, Sam, Alessandro, Dylan and Mark. And of course, Nigel, thank you so much for co-hosting. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcast11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.